We are looking at the Eighth Commandment this morning, which is found in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 15. You may not want to turn there. You may actually want to turn to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, because very brief reading in Exodus 20. You can probably follow that in your bulletin. And then I'll turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 11. Exodus 20, verse 15, the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. And then from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Sure, most of you are familiar with the story, either through the book or the play or one of the movie versions of Les Mis or Les Miserables. A great story written by a professing Christian, which in so many ways, in so many aspects of the story, is a reflection and an illustration of the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the first scene of that story, the main character, a man named Jean Valjean, has just recently been released from prison. He'd been there for almost 20 years. And he was thrown in prison because he had stolen bread to feed his starving family. And so, because of the cruel and unusual punishment, really, for a crime of that level... He had already been bitter and angry when he left prison, but once he got out into society, he became even more bitter and angry because he realized that society had totally rejected him, that he was an outcast, that he couldn't even provide for his own needs because of his background. Well, as you know, the story goes on to talk about him showing up at the door of a kindly old bishop of a church. And that bishop receives him into his home and he gives him a a, a big meal, gives him a nice warm bed to sleep in. But instead of being thankful, Jean Valjean sneaks out in the middle of the night and breaks into the cupboard and steals the silverware from the bishop and runs off. Very quickly, the police capture Jean Valjean and they bring him back in handcuffs to the bishop so that the bishop can accuse him. But instead of accusing him, the bishop says, Jean Valjean, we gave you the the, the silverware, but you didn't take the more valuable pieces. Here are the two candlesticks that you should have taken with the silverware. Next week, we're going to talk about the ninth commandment. And we'll talk about whether it was right to bear false witness. Is that a good way to help somebody? (laughs) But that's not our focus today. Our focus today is on how this priest 
made such a great personal sacrifice in order to set Jean Valjean free. And not only to set him free, but to give him the resources to get a fresh start, a new beginning in his life. And we know what Jean Valjean did with that. He became a very successful factory owner, businessman, and a mayor of a community. And more importantly, he became a very kind and generous disciple of Jesus Christ. What a great illustration of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's what the cross has done for us. It's what Paul was talking about. Paul was actually expositing the eighth commandment in Ephesians 4 when he says in verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see how Paul builds on the negative commandment, do not steal. He starts with that, but he says it doesn't stop there. Once you've stopped stealing, begin to work. Become productive. And then once you're productive, you're going to have something to be able to share with others. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, not only to provide pardon and forgiveness for thieves, but he died on the cross and was raised from the dead so that thieves could be transformed into joyful givers. Everybody here this morning is somewhere on that spectrum between being a taker in every aspect of your being because that's how you were born into this world, selfishly taking what you can get, grasping in life, to becoming what Jesus Christ died for you in order to make you, which is an open-handed giver. Where are you in that spectrum? Let me start by looking at a biblical view of property because our culture, our society that we're immersed in doesn't get it, doesn't understand. We talk about the rights for property and we as Americans are very big on the right to private property, but we miss the underlying principles that scripture lay out for us. The Bible says you shall not steal. And people generally aren't going to disagree with that one. Matter of fact, I think you'll probably get, you grab the typical person on the street, you're going to get universal agreement on that one. That's a good commandment. We like that one. You should not steal. What's one of the first words that a young, between infant and toddler, what's one of the first words you learn? Mine. Mine. And we tend to focus on the selfishness that that reflects, that we're all born with. But there's something good about that, that there's a a just sense that you should respect the property of others. That's something that's kind of in the law of God written on the heart, something of the conscience. Matter of fact, we owe our whole economic system to a right to personal and private property. So much of our laws and our government is based on an assumption of a personal right to property, but it's not an absolute right, the scriptures tell us. For the believer, the scriptures give us three basic principles, you'll find them in your bulletin, three basic principles which qualify or limit our right to personal property. The first principle is that God is the ultimate owner of everything in the universe. 
even the things that you currently have in your possession. God is the ultimate owner. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and the world and those who dwell therein. God created all things and he has ultimate authority over how everything in the universe is used. So when you use the word my or the word mine, in your mind you should always have an asterisk after it because it's only yours in a limited sense. It's only my house or my car or my clothes or my bank account in a limited sense because God ultimately owns all things. And I am to use the things that are in my possession according to the Creator's will. They belong to Him. I mean, we operate by that in our own families, don't we? I'm sure when my son drives around town in the car, I'm sure when he talks to his friends, he calls it my car. But I hope he understands that if he says that in my presence, that I am going to always be putting an asterisk after that my or my, you know, when he talks about my car, because ultimately it's my car. Well, not ultimately, it's ultimately God's car. But my son understands, I think, that he uses the car under my authority according to my will, because I'm the head of the household. God created all things, and he has ultimate say over how all things are to be used. Second principle is that God is the provider of all good things. James chapter 1, verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God not only created all good things, but God distributes all good things. When God created the universe, he didn't go off into some other plane of existence and leave us here to work things out, grasp for whatever we can get. God, every day, every moment of every day, is very actively involved in every aspect of his creation, and he distributes his good gifts according to his sovereign will. Job understood that. You remember Job? Job is a very wealthy man, more wealthy in his day than what we are in our day. But in a very short period of time, God took away Job's cattle, his, his other livestock, his servants, his houses, and even his children, and even his health. God took away all things that he would have called good in life. Do you remember how Job responded? The Lord gave, and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all these things, God did not charge, Job did not charge God with wrong. Job understood that God created all things, and God distributes all things in this life according to his sovereign will, and he trusted that God was good. So if God takes away, God has every right to do that, and he understood that God did that for his good and for his witness to the world. God is creator and God is provider. So when you steal, in whatever form that takes, when you steal, what you're saying is, God didn't provide enough for me. I'm going to take this in my own hands. I'm going to grasp what I need because God hasn't provided adequately for me. Obviously, the cure then for stealing is contentment. 
and trusting the Lord. Secondly, what stealing says is you don't trust God to provide for other people because if God provided for them and you take it from them, you're saying God made a mistake to give it to them in the first place. So by stealing, in whatever form you do that, you're actually denying that God is the ultimate provider of all things. Third and finally, God is the creator, God is the provider, and we are managers. The biblical word often we use is stewards. We are stewards of the things that God places under our control. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over all the earth. Genesis 2.15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. We are managers of what belongs to God. Jesus used parables over and over again, so many different variations on the same theme in the parables that he told. He would talk about a wealthy person who would leave in the hands of managers or stewards or workers, he would leave his vineyard or his money or his belongings in the hands of these stewards, and he would go away, then he would come back and hold these people accountable for how they treated his things, whether they took care of them or not, and whether they used them for gain, whether they invested well, whether they produced well with what he had put in their hands. And what this speaks to is that being a good manager of God's resources doesn't mean just running your bank accounts well or investing well. It means working, being productive, taking what God has given you in the skiffs and the, and the health and the possessions and the money that he's given you and using it to be productive in life. That's being a good steward and a good manager of God's things. It's essential to human dignity. We are made in God's image. So we are made to be faithful and diligent and productive workers. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10-11 through 11, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Such persons we commend and encur- command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Understand that laziness, in whatever form it takes, laziness is a passive form of stealing. Laziness is a passive form of stealing. So the scriptures teach us that God owns everything and that he distributes what he owns according to his sovereign will and that what he expects of us is to take what he's distributed to us, whether it's a lot or a little, and use it, work with it productively. That's what he expects of us. And as the rest of the Old Testament laws elaborate on what the Eighth Commandment is talking about, it gets into some really big issues about culture, about government, about economies. There are some systemic stealing that goes on among sinners in a dark and fallen culture. And the kind of things that the Old Testament law addresses are things that are extremely relevant today. Things like overcharging for goods and services, using false weights and measures to defraud somebody, mixing chaff with wheat, or mixing water with wine to give to somebody less than what they thought they were getting. Charging exorbitant interest when loans are made. Unjustly seizing the property of another 
governments unjustly taxing their citizens. I told the first service you guys would say amen on that one. I, we, have, we, have enough, we have enough people that are big on that issue. I, I expected a big amen. It is, <laughs> it is stealing. Whether the government does it, whether the corporation does it, whether your neighbor does it, it's still taking what God did not intend for you to have. In a godly business transaction, and there is such a thing, in a godly business transaction, both the buyer and the seller walk away happy and blessed and better off. Because the buyer has money, he would rather have the product than the money in his pocket, and the seller would rather have the money in the guy's pocket than the product that is on his shelf. And that's good business, that's godly business, that's taking the resources God has given you and being productive with it. On a personal level, though, step out of the corporate sin and let's step into the personal sin for a moment. You probably didn't walk in here this morning thinking, I'm a thief, but you are. We must be above reproach. We as Christians must be above reproach because we understand these principles about private property and how it relates to our relationship with God. We must be above reproach when it comes to stealing, no matter how common and acceptable some of these practices are. Not many of you are going to leave and sometime this week rob a bank or knock over a liquor store. I don't expect that's going to happen. It could, but I don't expect it. I would actually be surprised if any of you picked up a candy bar without paying for it at Walmart this week. Some of you might do that, but I'd be surprised. But how many of us recently have borrowed something and neglected to return it, or return it in the same condition in which we borrowed it? How many of us, day in and day out, get paid for an eight- or nine-hour workday But as God knows and God sees, we really only work a five- or six-hour workday. How many of us use our company's property, like stamps or pens or maybe the company car, for personal benefit? It's kind of interesting when you think about those kinds of stealing. I saw a stat recently that said that when you look at the price tag on a product sitting on a shelf that generally speaking, one-third of that price covers what was stolen in the process of bringing that product to the shelf, whether in stealing of time or property. or One-third of the price is to cover the thievery of, the, of it, what it takes when you have sinners involved in producing a product and putting it on the shelf. How many, have, how many of us have deceived others when it comes to buying and selling? I had this come home to me a number of years ago. Uh, sometimes it doesn't, you have to get tested sometimes to see where your heart is. Uh, my father died, he, and when he died, um, we were splitting up the inheritance um, because my mother had already passed away. And it came to our family that we would get his car. We, he had a nice car, and we basically got that as part of our inheritance. Well, we were in my hometown where I grew up, and so we had driven our family van to the funeral and to the settling of the inheritance. And so I drove up to my dad's favorite car dealer in town and said, could I, could I basically trade in or you know, give you my van so that we can drive our car home instead? 
But I had a real dilemma of conscience during that time because I knew that for the past couple of months, there were some really clear signs that there was some oil leakage around the engine block. And I had a pretty good idea that there was a serious problem with the engine. But I hadn't taken it to a repair place yet. I hadn't had some expert say, you know, your engine's got problems. I really wrestled my conscience. What would the Lord have me do? Should I tell him that I think there's a serious problem with maybe a leak in the engine block? Or can I justify not saying anything? It did cost me half of the trade-in value of my car to tell him that. But I did the right thing. Because to us, as a Christian, we have to reject the worldly ethic that says something is worth whatever somebody's willing to pay for it. Because God knows what things are worth. And it's our desire to reflect truth, not what's to our best and personal advantage. How many of us have downloaded software illegally? How many of us, and this is going to hit me a little closer to home in the past, I'm repentant. How many of us have downloaded music illegally? How many of us downloaded movies or gotten cable access illegally? Things that are so acceptable in our culture to be expected. They even factor it in in costs. How many of us have lied on tax forms so that we don't pay what we should pay? How many of us, and this is one, when you look back at the old commentators on the Eighth Commandment, this is the one that not many of us would put in this category. How many of us rob other people of their good name when we gossip about them or slander them? We rob them of their reputation. How many of us, maybe even this morning, rob God? Because that's what Malachi says we do when we don't give our tithes and offerings. We are all thieves. And I haven't even gotten to the hidden sin of the heart, have I? You know why I haven't? I'm not going to take any time for that this morning because that comes up in commandment number 10. You shall not covet. We'll deal with that later. So I'm just talking about things that people can observe. And we're all thieves. But I want to end this morning by looking at what the gospel does. Because repenting of your taking, of your selfish taking, is only half of the process. Because Jesus Christ died to pay for that sin, but he died to turn you into something radically different. How does the gospel transform our nature? Jesus said, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if someone asks you for your coat, or some translation, if someone takes your coat, give him your shirt also. How do you, how do you have that attitude in life? How do you become like that bishop who said, yo, you took my silverware? Here, take my candlesticks too. How do we become like that? Well, as always, it happens at the foot of the cross. Jesus, as you look up at Christ dying on the cross, what you see is the perfect manager, the perfect steward. And he died there to bear the penalty of your thieving, of your stealing. It's interesting, isn't it, that he died between two thieves? And one of those thieves 
turned to him and said, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He put his trust in his, the dying Christ next to him. Remember what Paul says, he who was rich became poor so that you through his poverty could become rich. You know what Jesus said to that dying thief? Just as he said, hopefully, to all of you, you will be with me in paradise. You will be rich beyond your wildest imaginations if you just trust in me. The other thief died in his sins, rejecting Christ. We all have that choice. Confess your selfish, sinful taking, and the blood of Christ will cleanse you from all sin. And you will be seen not only as a taker, but a giver. But once you have received that forgiveness, Christ begins to change you. That gospel that saves you from the sin and the penalty of your sin begins to transform you into a giver. You have a new heart with new desires. Think about the things that change because you understand what Jesus did for you at the cross. Because of the gospel, there's a change in your security in life. Where do you find your security? Where do you find your hope? We understand that we're heirs in Christ's kingdom. We are rich. This life is such a brief period of time, and it'll be over soon. And in the new heavens and the new earth, all things will belong to us under Christ. We can live in a time of deprivation. Whatever the Lord might ask us to go without, we can live with it because we're rich for all eternity because of what Christ has done for us. The second thing the gospel does is it changes our investment strategy. We don't live for earthly benefit, for earthly returns, for earthly compounding interest anymore. We don't live for that anymore. Let me take you back to the Sermon on the Mount again. Very familiar passage. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. By his grace, we've been given the heart of Christ when it comes to our earthly belongings. And now we don't store them up for selfish gain or selfish security. We, we use them for what our heart really desires in life now. And if you have the heart of Christ, what you really desire is to see the gospel being preached to whatever, in whatever field, in whatever, to whatever people, in whatever circumstance it can be preached. You want the gospel preached. And you want to see churches planted. You want to see disciples made. And you begin to want that more than you want the new car or the bigger house or the bigger, you know, high-definition television. It's really what you want. It changes not only your security, not only your investment strategy, but it also changes your values. What is your treasure? Jesus says, where your heart is, there your treasure is. What's your treasure if God has given you a new heart through Jesus Christ? Well, the scriptures make it clear that, you know, that the land of Israel, the land flowing with milk and honey, represented the new heavens and the new earth. But that really, even this earth or this renewed universe, when Christ comes again and makes everything perfect, that's not really our inheritance. Our inheritance, the scriptures say, ultimately is the Lord himself. 
He is our inheritance. He is our portion. He is our treasure. That's why Habakkuk could say at the end of his prophecy, the last couple of verses say this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He is our inheritance. And the beautiful thing about that inheritance is is we're already receiving that benefit, that blessing. Because Paul says in Ephesians 1 that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee or the deposit of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. We already have the down payment, our inheritance in our lives today because we have the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God with us because of what Christ did for us. We are so rich, no matter what we have in earthly belongings. And finally, the gospel transforms our disposition We go from being those selfish graspers like we were when we were toddlers and saying, mine, 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 don't touch it, it's mine. To what Tom read earlier from Deuteronomy 15 is what he is making us into is these open-handed givers. We don't grasp. We receive so that we can give because of our love for Christ. Let me take you back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 again. And just read those verses. We read them earlier, but let me just pull a couple of those verses out. Verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, a joyful giver, a giver who gives because of the transformed heart by the gospel. And then he says the promise is given in verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. That's what it means to be remade into the image of God, is that we are transformed from being selfish takers into generous givers. That's the goal of the gospel. Not just to cover our sin of thievery, but to transform us into the image of Christ that we would give like he does. Ephesians 4.28, let me read the verse to you again. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he will have something to share with anyone in need. That's the work of the gospel in us. The gospel of Jesus Christ provides full pardon for thieves like you and me, and then transforms us from being takers into being producers, and from producers into givers. That's God's goal for your life. The more joyfully you give, the more like Christ you are. John Piper in his book, Desiring God, I'm going to end with this great quote from his chapter on material things in in the book, Desiring God. He says this, There are three levels of how to live with things. Three levels of how to live with things. One, you can steal to get. Two, you can work to get. Or three, you can work in order to give. Too many professing Christians live on level two. Almost all of the forces of our culture urge them to live on level two. But the Bible pushes us relentlessly to level three. May we become level three disciples of Christ by his grace. Let's pray.
Father, forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive us for our materialism. Forgive us for our coveting. Forgive us for our acts of thievery. Forgive us for our blindness to the reality that you are our treasure. Your kingdom is where we want to invest our resources and that we need to be like Jesus Christ to know real joy. There is no greater joy than seeing people come to know Christ and have their needs met in him. May we become givers who are used greatly of you in that process. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.